Well, what a great morning to dive into Daniel 7 with the events that are going on across the world and also <clears throat> snow on the ground. Amen. Great time to go into Daniel chapter 7. Is anyone really in control? Yes, our God is in control. The first six chapters of the book of Daniel have been a blessing to study. I've still got some reverb, Zach, pretty strong up here. You'll, can y'all hear me okay? Sounds all right out there? I can deal with it up here as long as you are hearing okay, all right? We've uh, studied some amazing passages of Scripture, and we've been cruising right along through the book of Daniel. We've seen our God in His extreme uh, delivering power and His glory, and we've seen how sovereign God is. We've seen uh, His faithfulness, and also the faithfulness of His people that flows forth out of the fact that our God is faithful. <clears throat> Whether it's been a lion's den, or a fiery furnace, or even uh, handwriting on the wall, we've seen that our God is faithful. <clears throat> so every week it's been a blessing to study His Word, and all of these events in Daniel 1 through 6, they're all uh, very important in redemptive history. And we, we, we realize that. But now as we get to chapter 7, we're going to start, uh, instead of cruising right along, we're going to start uh, swimming in jello. We're going to swim a little bit in some quicksand <coughs> for a while. It's going to be tough. And I hope you realize how tough Daniel 7 is through 12 is for us. Now, it's not hard to believe if you just lean on your favorite commentator, <coughs> excuse me, or your favorite uh, camp that you may fall in when it comes to eschatology, or if you just simply read your Bible study notes in your Bible study book, right? Your, your Bible that, is, that has your study helps in it. If you just lean on those, then Maybe it's not too hard, but if you really try to figure out what's going on in the book of Daniel, then it's, it's no small thing to do so. As a matter of fact, let's just listen to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. <laughs> I can agree with Daniel, right? Uh, chapter 7, verse 28. The Bible says, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. But I kept the matter in my heart. And then in chapter 8, verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I arose, I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. How y'all feel about this today then? If Daniel himself... Uh, was sick. As a matter of fact, I thought about calling in sick this morning. You know, there's snow on the ground and you're dealing with Daniel 7. I figure, let's just let the next man up deal with Daniel chapter 7. But I think all my staff would have resigned on the spot if they had to deal with chapter 7. But I came anyway. And I am ready to preach this really tough section. So our goal today will be to build a foundation, which helps us to understand this is kind of a combined prophetic and also apocalyptic. They're not the same, and we dealt with that before. I'm not going to rehearse that again or go over it, but our goal is to help to, 
try to get a framework to understand what we're going to see when we, as we head through these chapters. So we're going to build this foundation. Now again, you can easily do that if you fall into your certain camp that you have. You're going to use an interpretive grid for everything that you hear. And I would submit to you that they, that may or may not be the case if you really seek to study the book of Daniel inductively. Inductively means that we're looking for the minor things that build to the generalities instead of looking for the majors and coming out with what your camp may be. So Daniel chapters 1 through 6 have all been historical narrative. We've seen Daniel, we've seen his three friends, we've been introduced to three kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius, or Cyrus the Great. That's who he really is. And in chapters 7 through 12, there's a shift from historical narrative over to apocalyptic prophetic visions. And there are other Bible books that will employ apocalyptic literature. And you know some of these, right? Zechariah is going to have some sections. Of course, much of Ezekiel has this. And then when you get to the New Testament, you have a book called the Apocalypse. And it's better known as the book of Revelation. And it's going to be 90% apocalyptic. And it's incredibly difficult to ascertain symbolically in every occasion what John is speaking of. Sorry about that. My voice is struggling today. The vision of chapter 7, verse 1 says that Daniel has a vision. That vision actually is given to him uh, in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Okay, so you have to think. If we're looking at chronology, how does this all take place? Well, Daniel 7 takes place in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. All right. Daniel chapter 8 take place, takes place in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. And so chronologically, Daniel 7 through 8 fits between chapters 4 and 5 of Daniel. Chapter 9 is said to have taken place in Darius's first year. And Daniel 10 through 12 takes place in Darius's third year. So this means that Daniel 9 would parallel Daniel 6. And chapters 10 through 12 would have taken place after Daniel 6. And here's another very, very important thing to remember. Daniel 7 parallels Daniel 2. So we have this incredible division of genre. I get that. From historical narrative to apocalyptic literature. However, there's interrelated structures in the book of Daniel. Thus, when you see chapters 2 and 7, they're going to mirror each other. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was given a dream that really messed him up. And it was a colossus figure that had those four kingdoms in it, his being the first. Well, when you get to chapter 7, it's going to mirror that with the four beasts that we're going to see this morning. There's a noticeable difference here because in Daniel 2, it's given to a pagan king. But in Daniel 7, the vision is given to Daniel himself. In addition to the events mirroring 7 through 12... We also know that 7 through 12 will mirror, in a sense, the book of Revelation. So I know that we're tempted to think that chapters 1 through 6 are reserved for Sunday school classes. And 7 through 12 are reserved for prophetic conferences, right? But it's just not the case. As the book unfolds to you, everything is interrelated. So the visions actually picture for us a grand conflict between the God of all eternity and His people... And the powers of darkness. 
Folks, I want you to know that there's a reality behind the reality. Always. And so it is designed to strengthen and comfort the people of God. So this book is for you. It's for me. Daniel 7 through 12 is designed to do just that. To let us know that there is a king that's in control. And he doesn't live in Babylon. He doesn't live in Rome. He lives in heaven. And he controls all things. Our God and only our God is in control of all things. And whatever is happening on earth, whatever conflict the people of God are suffering, and whatever evil is caused by the nations through the enemy, we learn through the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation who is really in control of all things. And it is our God. He's in control of the Mideast right now. He's in control of all things. So this section is not going to primarily be about armchair theology. I know some of you are just a stickler for that. Jack Van Impey. I mean, whoever. Uh, John Hagee, God forbid. <clears throat> but anyway, you see all these things and you're thinking, hey, this has got to be the way it is. Well, the section is designed to give us an overwhelming impression of the mysteries of God's purposes and the conflict behind everything that's beneath history. I want to remind you that there are numerous interpretive perspectives on the book of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12. I'm not going to spend time engaging and enlightening you on all of those. I don't have time to do that, neither do I think it's good for us. Uh, we're not going to spend time, for instance, when you get to the ten horns on the fourth mongrel beast. Do you know how much ink's been spent or spilled on those ten horns to try to figure out what's going on, to try to identify every single one of them? They even try to identify the very tips of the ten horns. Or the fungus between the toes on the ten horns and the feet, right? There's so many extremes out there. We need to avoid the extremes. The first extreme is to hesitate to interpret uh, virtually anything. And that's a terrible travesty. In other words, they will take those four kingdoms and say... They really don't have any meaning at all. It's just big eternal ramifications and realities. That would be a, to your detriment to interpret that way. The other extreme would be to try to find out what the fungus between the toes in the feet of the, of the mongrel beast really is when they shatter. You understand? We want to avoid both of those extremes. Those who see it only as eternal eternal categories and fail to literally interpret any of it whatsoever just says hey in the end God wins and we do too right and that's true <clears throat> however I think the Bible is given to us here we need to avoid the extremes I don't have a chart uh, to give you with animals and horns and wings we just need to look into the Word of God let it interpret itself and here's the best thing you might can do the old adage goes pray your pastor full and he will preach you full. So I think I need that kind of praying in the next few weeks as we dive into Daniel 7 through 12. So Belshazzar is the vice regent at this point. Okay, It's perhaps 522 B.C. Daniel is probably around 75 years of age. And Daniel is going to tell the sum of the matter or he's going to write down the substance of his dream. And he knows that this is revelation directly from God, recorded from the Lord to him and given to us. Okay? You got one point this morning. You ready for it? God is sovereign over the nations. 
And in chapter 7, 1 through 8, that's what we're going to see. Are you ready? Chapter 7, 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I looked, its wings were plucked out, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of the man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on its one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. In verse 2, this is what he sees. He sees the sea, and he sees the wind, and he sees it coming forth from the four points of the compass. It indicates that this is a massive, global, universal picture that Daniel is actually seeing from the Lord as divine revelation. The ancients thought of this as the four points directionally, which would be north, south, east, and west. What they would be thinking was something that was universal and something that was absolutely comprehensive when, they, when you would use that kind of terminology. So the four winds come, and what are they doing? They stir up the sea, the great sea. And most prophets will agree that uh, most commentators will agree that in all, all likelihood, these are the nations of the world. E.J. Young says, by means of the winds, God stirs up the nations. Now catch that. The Bible says that the stirring up comes from heaven. So who's in control? And so Daniel sees that the nations are now in chaos. The nations are in turmoil. <laughs> Is that true today? In Revelation 7-1, the four angels of God are actually holding back the four winds. Isn't that interesting? Daniel, uh, excuse me, Revelation 7, verse 1. In this passage, there's tumult and chaos among the nations. And right up front, we're reminded of something clearly. By the way, before I tell you what that is, in Revelation 4 and 5, we see a sea around the very throne of God. S-E-A, right? It's smooth as glass and it's peaceful. But what's actually happening on earth is not smooth and peaceful. It is tumultuous. It is, there's tons of turmoil and chaos. 
but it is the God of heaven who is actually in control of the sea on earth, right? Where everything, God is absolutely, it's peaceful, and he's in absolute control on earth, it is not the case. So what Daniel is seeing is not a freak of nature. It's not uh, Mother Nature being let loose, but it's actually the God of heaven stirring up the wind and the sea. Incidentally, this has been the revelation given to the kings throughout the book of Daniel. We know for sure that Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, and Darius have been given this understanding that our God has an everlasting dominion, that his kingdom is unrivaled, and that he is absolutely sovereign over all things. All things. So he raises up kings. Remember that in Daniel 2? And he deposes of kings. He governs over nations and controls all things. So in this picture of chaos on the earth and the four winds and knowing full well that the nations will rise against nation, it is still our God who is in control. And I hope by all means that you understand that this morning, clearly from the Bible. So Daniel then will see ten, excuse me, four beasts that come forth from the sea. Uh, he doesn't tell us how the beasts will emerge from the sea, but he sees them. And they're all different from one another. Did y'all note that? They're all different from one another. They all represent the rise of kings and kingdoms and national powers. For some of you kids, you ought to like this. It looks more like a jungle book. As we look into these beasts, it's like the video games that you knuckleheads play, right? That's what you were thinking about. It's like a jungle book, and it looks more like, what's it called? Fortnite? Or, uh, I don't know, what's the other? Call of Duty, whatever y'all play. Anyway, kids, you ought to pay attention to this right down your alley. If we had it projected on the screen, you, you guys would love it, right? If it was up there and we were seeing these beasts. Okay. Beast number one. You see it? The first one was like a lion that had eagle's wings. Now, we know that our nations even sometimes will use imagery of a, an animal, such as the U.S. with an eagle and what is Russia, the bear, or symbolic representations for a nation. Well, the lion is the king of the beast, and he is the king of the fields of the earth. He is fierce. But this one has wings like an eagle. So the idea is that he is fierce, but swift with mobility and can attack like a bird of prey. So the first beast, a lion with wings, parallels in chapter 2, the head of gold, which is Babylon. It's going to parallel. You don't have to do much head scratching to figure this out because looking at chapter 2 and verse chapter 7 and how Daniel is going to actually interpret it. So we know that archaeologically, they've proved that Babylon used a lion as its national symbol. Plus, Jeremiah 4, Jeremiah 50, both depict Babylon as a lion. Also in Jeremiah 4, Jeremiah 48 and 49, as well as Ezekiel 17, depicts Babylon as an eagle. So here you've got this hybrid animal that emerges from the tumult of the nations. All this chaos, right? It's fierce. It's mobile. It's dominating. And Daniel says, I kept looking, and its wings were plucked out. What does that mean? It's going to lose some power and some steam, right? It was lifted up from the ground. It was standing upright on two feet like a man. And what we see here is the power of Babylon is greatly reduced. It's no longer a fierce beast of the field that is so mobile. 
it is humanized in a sense. It's no longer analogous to this incredibly fierce beast with wings standing up like a man. Its power and fierceness is greatly diminished. Then it says the mind of a man was given to it. I think this is probably a twist for, Daniel, for God to highlight to Daniel the uh, boatrophy or lycanthropy that Nebuchadnezzar went through. Remember? Y'all thinking back to, to what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? And so Babylon was itself greatly reduced. It became much more human-like. Its powers diminished. And we know that when Cyrus comes in with the Median army, that they actually give no resistance to the takeover. We know this extra-biblically as they went through the aqueducts or whatever to go up under <clears throat> Babylon's walls and, and take the city. Uh, they never even fought back. They just, it was greatly diminished. And so, that's beast number one. Y'all getting this? It's a great devotion for a snowy day, isn't it? All right, beast number two, verse five. Here we have another fierce animal. And the bear is parallel to the chest of silver in Daniel chapter two. Okay, we're looking at this Colossus, right? And it represents the Medo-Persian empire. We see that this bear on one side is lifted up higher than the other. Why do y'all think that's the case? It's called the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Persian side was always stronger than the Median side. Okay? So, it has more dominion. It has more power. Cyrus is both... He was personally, individually, both Median and Persian. But it was his ruling in Persia that brings about the Medo-Persian Empire. So, the Persians were almost always the powerful military might behind this particular empire. The ferocious bear obviously has a kill lying around somewhere because he's got a rack of ribs between his teeth. I ate some ribs last night and boy, they were good. They were. I can identify with this particular bear. But this bear actually hears voices. Not like the ones on Jungle Book, right? This bear is hearing something to rise up and devour much flesh. The command is more likely the power to devour Babylon. But it actually could have been others involved in this. And again, notice that the bear is commanded. There's no doubt that the command comes from God. I want to remind you all of something. Nothing catches our God by surprise. He's in control of all things. Even Iran and Iraq. All of it. So the Lord God Almighty says arise and, he's, and, and Babylon is commanded I mean Medo-Persians are commanded to do so divine providence rules over the affairs of mankind that's what we read in the Bible so from a biblical perspective when Babylon fell it fell because God said fall have you read the book of Jeremiah? this means yes, this means no have you? there are so many places where God says this is going to happen and bang, it happened this kingdom's going to come up. Uh, you're going to fall prey to the Assyrians. You're going to be in captivity, northern kingdom. A southern kingdom, Babylon's going to rise up in 558. You're going to be in captivity. Guess what happens? When God speaks, no man can stay his hand. Right? When God acts. So the reason the Medo-Persian Empire came to power is because God said come to power. I want to remind you, we're in a position in the U.S. today because God allowed it to be the way it is. And no other reason. And if God says fall, we fall. 
I don't care how much economic prowess you have. I don't care what you got in your 401k. I don't, I don't care what you're doing for retirement. If God says it's over, it's over. Period. It's going to happen the way God says it's going to happen. Do y'all like cats? Well, the next one's a leopard. I don't know about cats. Those rascals can be evil. Point number four. Cats should never be allowed to be in the house. Right? I mean, it's just true. Okay, here it is. Beast number three. A leopard with four wings. Now, check this out. It's one thing uh, to be a lion with two. But here's a leopard with four. Now, in regard to the parallel in chapter two, this would be the Greco. This would be Greece. It would be the middle part of the Colossus with thighs of bronze. And so here we have pictured a leopard with two, not two wings, but four. In other words, this animal is incredibly swift. It is intelligent. It's a remarkable hunter. The dude is supercharged. Boy, this fits good with your video games, doesn't it? Can't y'all kind of add armor, right? Just go ahead and buy you a couple of wings, or four wings, right? So he's got four wings on his back, and with the agility that this leopard has, it's already amazing to think about agility, but now, God, the mobility that it has. It's possible that this even suggests the ability to maneuver among the four winds, four points of the moving of the winds, uh, geographically, northeast, south, and west. Why? You only need to look at Alexander the Great, right? And what did he do? You're going to realize that in 12 short years, he's going to rule from the Indus River all the way to the Nile. What a massive space of land. It's actually said that Alexander the Great, when he reached the conquest of all the known world, actually bemoaned the fact that there wasn't something else for him to conquer. But we know that he actually died at 32 years of age. And check this out. He also has four heads. Some believe that this corresponds to the four corners of the earth, uh, of intelligence, of the empire growing. However, again, he died at 32, and the kingdom did not stay intact. You remember, he divided into four generals, which is, in fact, what y'all do know that all of this is going to take place. Daniel is telling you what's going to take place before it takes place. When you get to this point, right? Think about this. You're going to have uh, these dudes in history that are going to be the four kings. Antipater ruled Greece and Macedon, Lysimachus in Thrace, and much of Asia Minor. Lucius I is going to rule in Mesopotamia and Persia, and Ptolemy I is going to be in Egypt and Palestine. But it's the Seleucid Empire that Daniel is going to put his focus upon when we move on into chapter 8 and the dominion that's going to be given to it. So you may credit Alexander the Great with incredible military training and the reason for all of this success. But here's the reality. The Greek Empire came to power because God said, come to power. God is sovereign over all nations. But when you get to this last beast, there's not a lot of simile. There's not a lot of uh, information about wings and the way this thing looks. But Daniel's going to explain to us how it affects him as he sees this mongrel beast. And let's read that one more time. The Bible says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong, had great iron teeth, 
devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So, dreadful, terrifying, exceedingly strong, and it, par- it parallels what? The iron clay legs and feet of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. Thus, I told you about the fungus between the toes, right? Some of you are thinking, where in the world does that come from? Well, there it is. It represents the Roman Empire. This one is the most frightening and ruthless of all. The Bible describes it as having iron teeth. Just imagine this. It crushes everything that comes in contact with it. Uh, Not to get eaten by a bear would stink. How many pounds of pressure do you think would be in a bear's jaws? So the picture is absolutely amazing. Force, ferociousness, and the sheer power of it outstrips the other three kingdoms. This is going to be the most powerful kingdom. It's cruel, it's ruthless, and it's absolutely destructive. Why? Because what it doesn't eat and anything left over, it just goes through and stomps it. That's exactly what the Bible says. It's destructive. What it, what it, bite, what it doesn't bite into, it's going to turn around and crush it. So it was able to conquer and dominate with power. It was said of the Roman Empire that the Romans come and make a desert and call it peace. Remember that it was first a republic and it was basically only Italy, what would be Italy today. But at the height of its power through the Caesars, it would govern all of modern day Europe today up to Great Britain, Spain, and Gaul, and northern coast of Africa, Egypt, Palestine, Greece, as well as all of Asia Minor. My goodness. The Holy Roman Empire. Huge, right? But then it said it has ten horns. Y'all getting all this devotion? Right? Great devotion. And this is caused what we might call apocalyptic fever. All over the place. Trying to identify these ten horns. For sure, I think the idea has to do with power, right, and authority. We can at least say that in this kingdom there's multiplied strength because it's an incredible kingdom and then it's got these ten horns. It could be ten Roman provinces. It could be ten Roman Caesars. The truth of the matter is Daniel's going to be fixated upon them. So much more so that he's going to explain it later in this chapter. But we're not going to do it this morning. And some of you are thinking, well, praise the Lord. Then we have this little horn. When this little horn comes up, it's first small. But then it appears that it's going to gather strength from three others as it uproots the other three. He's now formidable. He's an opponent. And check this out. He's an opponent to the people of God. Okay? Of the ten... He roots up three, gathers strength. He's a formidable opponent to the people of God. The little horn had eyes like a man. This dude's got observation. This dude's got intelligence. He's proud and he's boastful. And he's going, Daniel's going to inquire more about the fourth beast when you get to verses 19 through 28. I believe that the book of Revelation picks up where the book of Daniel leaves off and focuses on that fourth beast. Chapter 13, listen. Of, Dan- of Revelation. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. With ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And it, it, to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. 
One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. Hmm. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? So I believe in Revelation 7, Daniel's going to, the writer of Revelation, which is John, is going to talk about there's some kind of composite element to this beast. We've got to wait to see uh, next week when we talk more about the horns and the little horn, but here's the reality. Daniel's going to see something that is terrifying. Daniel's going to see something that lies ahead for the people of God. Daniel would have known for sure that he was living in the period of the first beast. And what are they hoping for? What are the Israelites hoping for? Restoration. They're hoping immediately to return to their homeland. And of course, Nehemiah is going to pick that up. Who's going to deliver them to their homeland? A pagan king, but ultimately God, right? Is going to give the edict to Cyrus. He's going to release the people. They're going to go home, build the walls, i.e. Nehemiah. And so they've got a promise of restoration. So Daniel's going to be meditating on the book of Jeremiah at this point. And he's going to say this captivity is supposed to be over at the end of 70 years of captivity. Then it's going to be restored. And under the next empire, the people of God are going to get a reprieve. Are you tracking with me? Under Cyrus, there's going to be a reprieve. It's, however, not going to last long to the people. It's a short one. And Daniel is reminded that it's going to become difficult, and it's going to be really difficult. There's going to be more conquering. There's going to be more brutality. After that, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. Does this have any relevance on us today sitting in this auditorium in Ozark, Missouri, in the year 2020? Does it? You better believe it does. I believe that Jesus Christ is the exalted King of kings and Lord of lords, and he controls all things on the earth. I wouldn't be a preacher if I didn't believe that, because the Bible would be a lie. The Bible tells us that his kingdom, he's not uh, applying for the reign, he already reigns. Get that through your mind. It's not like that we're here on, the, on earth and everything is just out of control and no one's in control. Yes, Our God is in control. And the Bible says His kingdom extends through the lives of His people, throughout the church, and throughout His world. Now understand something. The kingdom of God is advancing because souls are being saved. That's why we have a heart for missions at this church, right? Because we're going to obey the part we know we're supposed to obey, and that's not to politically try our best to fix everything, but we're going to obey what our God has asked us to do. And what our God has asked us to do is take the gospel to the ends of the earth so that his kingdom will advance. We're going to see this later, but there are people in every continent, tribe, tongue, that are going to give allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? I'm very highly optimistic in the way that the gospel of Jesus Christ will make inroads into dark places in this world. Don't you know there are believers standing on the streets in Iran and Iraq today? that know the king, because the gospel has made inroads into the darkest places in all the world. So here's the deal. I want to remind you that I'm also under no illusion that the world is slowly becoming Christianized in such a way that the church is going to overcome evil. 
My, my confidence is actually this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, is, is more glorious than anything we could ever imagine. And it's making inroads into every part of this world. And the king, Jesus, is advancing his kingdom just like he promised us he would do. But I want to remind you, it's not going to get better on earth. If there is a reprieve, you better thank God for it. But you better wake up, folks. Our very creation is yearning for the return of Jesus. Right? It's not going to continually get better. Uh, there's going to be a day coming in the future when we will suffer persecution and oppression like never before. Now, you may go through the valley of shadow of death before that happens. And to God be the glory, right? We're going to have glorious uh, reflection no matter what. Just think, to, to have your body placed in the ground, but your spirit and soul doesn't ever die, and you wake up and see Jesus face to face. Woo! That's awesome. I was thinking about my own death the other day. That's kind of morbid, right? You think about arrangements. You think about family. You think about wife. But you think about Jesus. Can you Imagine waking up to behold the glory of the Lord. Unhindered. Folks, that's going to be awesome. Now, if you hung to this world and your 401k, it may not be that awesome. But I'm telling you, you can't take it with you. I've done a lot of funerals in my day. Probably more than most 49-year-olds have ever done in their lifetime. Even as pastors. And I've never seen one person take anything with them. That's why you got to build up treasures in heaven where dust doesn't corrupt or moth or rust or whatever that may be. Just imagine the glory of seeing Jesus. However, if you are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord, you don't need to fear either, right? Because the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's, that are all the, that's those bodies that have gone in the grave that the Thessalonians were saying, what's going to happen to our loved ones? And Paul says, here's what's going to happen to them, but here's what's going to happen to you too. You shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. So if the, if the Lord came in all of his power and glory to second coming right now this moment, you understand that you've got a, you, you're, going to have a, you're going to have a metamorphosis. This body you have now can't go to heaven. God has to give you another one, right? A glorified body. I don't know why I'm saying all this to you, but here's the deal. You need to hear it. That's why, right? The world is not going to become more Christianized. Uh, Constantine tried that, did he not? Did it help? Well, that probably more gave rise to the Roman Catholic Church than anything else. Uh, but not, it wasn't a help to Christianity because we end up with uh, being kind of on the fringe of the Bible, uh, the, the Bible belt here in Missouri, and everybody thinks they're saved. Right? Even if you don't know Jesus, everybody's a Christian, right? Especially during the election years when you're a politician. Everybody's a Christian, right? But here's something I want to remind you of. More oppression and difficulty is going to come. And if you take the Bible inductively, there is no escape hatch. Now, I know some of you come from all different kind of camps, pre-trib, mid-trib, trib, post-trib, ah-mill, post-mill, pre-mill. I could care less what mill you are, but here's what I want you to know. Daniel is writing this to a people that will not escape oppression. He's writing to a group of people that will go through what's coming in the future, okay? 
Um, if you want to believe in pre-tribulation or rapture, I'm happy with you. And I hope I go when you go. Alright? But I want to remind you of something. That's not clearly taught in the Word of God. What is clearly taught is that through much tribulation we must all go through before we enter the kingdom of God. That is a direct verse of Scripture. So I want to remind you that you must be ready. Surely we're going to have reprieves. And to be honest with you, how many years uh, has our country? 1776 to 2020. Do the math. What an amazing reprieve. You've had in the United States of America. But you better not sleep on that reprieve. I'm telling you folks. Have you watched the news? Do you look at the media? Do you see the hatred toward Christianity? It's going to ramp up folks. And here's the interesting thing. Daniel will say in chapter 11. That the people who know their God will stand firm. And take action. You got it? Now here's the application for us today. We're in ease at Zion here in the United States of America. And we're not doing great exploits for God. But we need a good dose of persecution to help us figure out who's on the right side. Young people, you're in reprieve day. You couldn't have it any better than the United States of America. But yet you track off to school every day and the first thought on your mind is probably the girl you like or the boy you like, girls. Let's make sure we define that. Boys like girls, girls like boys. All right? And here's the deal. We go off to school and we've got a thousand things in our minds but we never think about the things of God. Oh, it's not just young people. It's us, right? Uh, how, can we, how can we even possibly remotely come to an end of a discussion to say, why would God put so many believers in a particular country and they be protected and not have the persecution like everywhere else in the world? Have you ever stopped and asked that question? God intends for you to do something with the message of the gospel. Right? How about all the wealth that we have in the United States of America? God intends for you to give us a lot of it away to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Can you think of, you can't take it with you. And when you die, your kids are going to spend the money that you left to them and you're not going to have a say-so about it. Right? Let's be honest. Daniel says those who know the Lord will stand firm and do great exploits. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with your life in light of what we've just seen in the text. It's going to get a little clearer uh, as we go through, and we're going to see some great things. Daniel 9 is absolutely fantastic when we read his prayer. Ooh, I hope we learn some things. But here's an introduction. Uh, you got a great devotion this morning. Four beasts coming up out of the sea. God is in control, right? We ought to stand firm and do great exploits for the Lord. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us, Father. Lord, help me. Lord, uh, just because we're pastors and preachers doesn't mean uh, that we get a free pass. Lord, we all know that we have been in a, a long reprieve. There, are, there is some persecution in our country, but primarily against civil religion. Not primarily against those who go out and share Christ and suffer true persecution for sticking with Jesus. Sharing the gospel. Lord, uh, Father, that's not going to be the case. For all time. Lord, we read it and we know that there's a little horn led by the great dragon. We know that there's a beast. We know that days will be difficult. God, help us not to be lulled to sleep. Help us to think about the fact that all of history is linear and with a purpose. 
And God, you are going to accomplish your purposes. But as your people, help us to stand firm. Help us to, 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 uh, to live correctly. Revelation 12, 11, They overcome by the word of their testimony. By loving not their lives even to the end. Lord, help us uh, to stick to the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation. No other name given under heaven among men. The gospel is not love your neighbor and love yourself. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came from heaven, lived a perfect life, died a death on our behalf, bearing our sin debt. He was buried and he rose the third day, according to the scriptures. In order for us to love our neighbor and ourselves, we've got to know Jesus. We've got to have our hearts changed by the grace and power of the Lord God. Lord, help us to live in such a way that we realize that we can't love our neighbor or ourselves without Jesus first loving us. That we've got to know who you are and our own sinful condition in order to be saved. And thank you, Jesus, for grace and mercy. That you could save sinners. Lord, you can even save someone today preaching through Daniel 7. We hear enough of the truth that God is in control and we should bow our heads to the gospel. Because ultimately, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that Daniel is looking toward. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of the King. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.